this is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our primetime mastermind focuses on mentorship and leadership. My guest is Peter Docker, author of the awesome new book, Leading from the Jump Seat. He's an accomplished speaker, teacher, best-selling author, and former Royal Air Force senior officer. His passion is enabling people to unlock their natural talents and teaches leadership that is focused on commitment and human connection. His clients include Google, Four Seasons Hotels, Accenture, American Express, and NBC Universal, just to name a few. This awesome interview with Peter and I coming at you right now. Well, thank you so much for for being with me. I uh, this book is awesome. I wanted you to begin our interview. Um, telling the audience who you are and a bit about your background actually before your flight career because uh, I think some of those those steps and things that you learned uh, kind of shape you. Where are you from and what's your background? Sure. Well, Sabrina Marie, it's wonderful to join you on your uh, show today. Oh, good heavens. I'm actually on Saturday. I'm 59 years old, so I go ways back and over 40 years ago, I went to university, and I came from quite a humble background. In fact, one of the reasons for going to university was because my parents were both out of work and, uh, and you know, struggling to make ends meet. And so I went to university to, well, study subjects I would hope would get me a, a good job so as I could um, pay for my own way, but also that of my parents. But then I joined the Royal Air Force for... 25 years, best part of 25 years. I was a pilot, but I was uh, a senior officer as well. I led people during combat. Uh, I negotiated with your State Department later on in my career on export licensing for defense equipment. During my time as well, I taught at the Defense College in the UK on leadership for senior military officers. I well, I negotiated with the Russians when the Berlin Wall came down on behalf of NATO. So a wide wow. range of things I did at the Air Force, um, not least running a $20 billion program. That was my last job. But then I thought, you know what, there's more I could do. So after the best part of 25 years, I left and I joined a consultancy which worked in high-risk environments in oil and gas, mining and construction, where typically people got killed or injured. And what we did was brought a way of being, a way of leading and a culture where everyone went home safe at the end of the day. And that was the extraordinary experience. I worked in the Middle East, in Africa, in places like Kazakhstan. And then after three years or so, I thought, well, you know what, there's more I could do. And at that time, (laughs) I came across a fellow called Simon Sinek, uh, who in 2009 had his famous TED Talk, Start With Why. And I, I went on, I worked with Simon for about seven or eight years, Uh, touring the world and helping to take his message out there. And during that time, I wrote the book Find Your Why with Simon and my dear friend and colleague David Mead. And that has sold about half a million copies so far in 26 languages. Um, But about two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, I stepped away from Simon so I could focus on getting together all the ideas that I'd come across and what I've learned after visiting 93 countries in the world and working with so many different industries and sectors. And I brought it all together in the, the book, 
that I think you have in your hand is called Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. So that is a quick run-through of <laughs> what I've been doing in my 59 years. Uh, it's been a huge privilege and very varied, too. Awesome. You mentioned university, and many people, they they fuss and, 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 and work and work to get to a university. What were you seeing going on in the world at that time where you wanted to step away from going to a university? Well, that, that's a great question, Sabrina Maria. It, it's, I, I went to university to study two subjects about which I knew nothing. I, <laughs> I went along to study a double degree in computing and electronic engineering. And the reason I did that was because, as I say, my parents were very hard up at the time. Uh, they'd both lost their jobs, and I didn't want to be a burden on them financially. And also, I wanted to be able to get a good job that paid good money so as I could support my family, my parents too. So that was the main motivation for going to university uh, and to secure that place. But then... In 1982, when I was halfway through my college degree, something else happened in the world that was another great crossroads for me. And that is the Falkland Islands down in the South Atlantic, which are a British dependency. They were invaded by Argentina. Now, at the time, I knew nothing about the politics uh, of it and the history, um, and that wasn't really important to me. What captured me at the time was this notion that someone was imposing their will on others. The others being the population of the Falkland Islands that identified and still do as British. And so I decided to leave university halfway through my college degree to join the Royal Air Force because I felt that by joining the Royal Air Force, I could become part of a team that in future could help people in situations like that, people who weren't able to help themselves. And the way I characterize that now, something that is one of the deep non-negotiables in my life is this notion of mutual respect, respecting one another. Right. And uh, yeah. that, that is a big driver for me. It's interesting. Through those uh, weaves of university, then going and mm. uh, joining, uh, you're learning to fly. You're also taking a stand. Some of the things you talk about in this wonderful new book, and I'm, I'm just trying to help our audience see, because hmm, a lot of our people, they go to college, or they, you know, have mm. been pushed into going to college, or their mom went there, or their father <laughs> went there, so they want to honor those, those uh, you know, or they, the people, like you said, their parents never even went to school and or lost their yeah. job. So you're yeah. doing uh, basically from not a – not a place of <laughs> of authenticity and interest, really. That it didn't even pique your interest. You just thought you could get a better job and maybe yeah. ability. Yeah, I mean, I I was interested in the the, the subjects that I went to study uh, at university, but I I think that the driver was was deep down that went beyond those subjects. As I say, it was about my parents. And this is one of the things I really dig into uh, at the start of the book. And that is to 
discover and encourage others to discover what is deeply important to you. I, I'm not talking about mm-hmm. the latest iPhone or a paycheck or whatever. No, what is deeply important, those non-negotiables. And, you know, for many of us, it's family. I remember a couple of years ago, I received a phone call from my wife, and she'd just been involved in a car accident. And I dropped everything to go to her aid. There was absolutely nothing that would stop me going to her aid. You know, it was only five minutes down the road. And I literally stepped into the unknown. I didn't know what I was going to find. But there's this energy inside of me that maybe stepped forward. And similarly, when I chose to go to university, uh, it was driven by this notion of not being a burden on others and being able to support my family. When I left university, that crossroads in life, it was because of this deep non-negotiable about mutual respect. And the reason I feel this is so important to take the time and reflect on what our non-negotiables are is because together they create this deep foundation, this deep reservoir of energy that helps us move forward even when we are in uncertain times, even when we don't know what we're stepping into. It gives us the, the courage and the motivation to move forward. And if we identify what those non-negotiables are, they can turn into what I refer to as stands. What do we stand for? What are the unshakable things in our life, which even when it's chaos out there, give us the handrail to hold on to, to guide the way we live our lives. So you got to the flying stage, and it's interesting. You're talking about fear. Fear comes along Mm. with the unknown, and it comes along with flying because you don't know what's out there. You're eager, you're focused, you want to get out there. And I'm wondering, what were some of the fears that you had when you decided to change, not just to go to the university and do uh, the status quo, but something Mm. a bit more out of the box? And you're looking to do this because you feel a deep need to help it others and make a difference. Were there any fears going into that? Mm, uh, of course, you know, and you've mentioned learning to fly and flying. My book, I I do use the metaphor of of flying as, um, well, as an example of leadership. Um, And Mm -hmm. in the book, I've got lots of stories about my flying career because each of those stories give great examples uh, and lessons around leadership. But It's a great metaphor for life, too. So when we're learning to fly, it's it's the equivalent of figuring out what's deeply important to you. And choices are the clues. You know, the choices we make in life give us the clues as to what's deeply important to us. But to your point, Sabrina Marie, fear will always crop up. You know, fear is in the shadows. And fear is triggered by a number of things. First of all, fear is triggered when we sense that our life is in danger. It's that primeval instinct that has us um, jump back out of the road when there's a car approaching that we didn't see, or it has us walk down the well-lit street rather than the back alley at night, you know? Uh, And fear is good in those circumstances. It helps to keep us alive. But the challenge is, in life, fear is also triggered by other things. It's triggered when we sense that our livelihood our status or our reputation is on the line. Now, those three things, they can come to the fore when we're deep in the business world. Obviously, we see it a a lot when we sense our livelihood, status or reputation is on the line. 
Um, but also, it can occur early on in life when we're choosing to go to university because there'll always be those people who also want to go and do that course. You want to do, I don't know, marketing instead. You'd be really good at that. But no, we're set on the course that we've decided going to that college, uh, to, to study that college degree. But there will be that fear because there's that feeling that our status or our reputation or we're doing the wrong thing that fear will come out of the shadows. And here's the thing. Quite often, when fear is triggered by a sense that our livelihood status or reputation is under threat, what can often happen is that we close down. We start to think not about others. We start to think about ourselves. We start to think that the world is a place of scarcity rather than a place of opportunity and possibility. And then the challenge is that we start to make decisions that negatively affect other people and worst of all ego can come to the fore and when we start leading our lives or leading others driven by ego then it tends not to work out very well at all so the opportunity is when we sense fear is arising due to our livelihood status or reputation of the threat the opportunity is to see that as a warning flag and instead make a choice and that choice is to be driven instead by love. And I'm going to pause there because <laughs> I've spoken a lot. And love, when we start talking about love, can get people a little bit unsettled, particularly in the business world. So where would you like to take that conversation, Sabrina Marie? Well, that's a good um, a good term because when you're doing things for the common good of other people and for their benefit, I would believe that you could greatly inspire and encourage people but if you're doing things the other way you're going to turn people off and you won't get their support at all right absolutely um, and that's the thing when we're driven by fear and particularly when ego raises its head you know ego is greek for i it's all a focus focus on self um, but that tends to well not go well and also it's driven by fear and fear is Acting from a basis of fear is not sustainable over the long term. But if we choose love instead, what love looks like is a view of the world where we see possibility and opportunity. It's where we're not looking inward, we're looking outwards, we're thinking of others. And instead of leading with ego, we lead instead with what I term humble confidence. And humble confidence is about being absolutely resolute on where you're going and willing to take the decisions when they need to be taken, and being confident as well in your own strengths, but equally having the humility, the humility to listen to the input of others, the humility to acknowledge when you don't know all the answers, and yet feel in a position to be able to continue to lead. Humble confidence is the key to leading from a place of love and a place of possibility rather than a place of fear and ego. Strength in numbers and and really uh, pulling your team in. You mentioned earlier stand and position, and those are really good metaphors in terms of, uh, you know, standing and being positive about something rather than butting heads and, like you just mentioned, ego, having a position. We see a lot of that in the world right now. Everybody's each other. (laughs) <laughs> You've got a lot of stuff yeah. going on. And I'm not seeing 
anybody being successful right now. I wanted you to speak on that, Stan, and why it's different than a position so people can understand a little bit more about that. That's in your book. Certainly. I mean, there's a great parallel, Sabrina Marine, between stand and position and love and fear. Okay, So, very briefly, a, a, a position is against something. Okay, And to your point, we hear a lot of that sort of language in the world at the moment. People taking views which are against those of others. But the thing with a position is that it can only exist when there's a counter-position. If a counter-position doesn't exist, your own position dissolves because there's nothing to take a position against, right? Mm -hmm. A stand, however, is different. A stand is for something. And the beauty of a stand is that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. This is your stand. It's what you believe. It's like planting your flag on your island. And anyone who sails past can see your flag and what you stand for. And if they stand for that too, they can come and join you on your island. But here's the important thing. If they don't stand for that, they can sail on by and that's just okay. You know, the, the example which I give in the book that I think brings it to life is around where, by where I live, out in the countryside here in England, we've got some nar very narrow streets going through the, the, the fields. And there's only room for one car in each direction. There's only room to one, for one car to pass at a time. And so sometimes what you get are two cars coming fender to fender, or bumper to bumper, as we say in this country, and both drivers will take up a position against the other driver. And that position will sound something like, well, you need to back up to the passing place. My journey is more important than yours, or you were going too fast. And what happens is those two cars, those drivers, they become more entrenched in their positions, and no one goes anywhere. But what if one of those drivers on meeting the other car, immediately reverses up to a passing place so as the other car can pass on by. And that's because that driver has a stand, a stand for being courteous on the road. And here's the thing, the other driver who is about to take up a position, his position just dissolves as he drives on by. The driver who has a stand for being courteous on the road, that stand is reinforced, is strengthened. And this is the other difference between a stand and a position. A position being against something, it tends, well, to be very negative, as you mentioned earlier. But a stand for something is generative, and it can build and it can continue regardless of anyone else and anything else in the world. And so anyone who's got very strong views about something, and certainly those who've got strong views against the views of others, it's really helpful if we pause for a moment and flip that coin over and ask ourselves, What's my underlying stand for something? What's my underlying commitment? Because when we do that, it becomes much more generative and a much more positive way to take a step forward, to lead ourselves and indeed to lead others. You give a good story in the book about uh, doing a race for charity and being really oh, yes. committed to that and seeing a bird's eye view by seeing yourself on top of that mountain and actually winning that uh, that marathon. And I thought that was really, really good because many people, they only see, okay, it's going to be difficult and I have to get up early in the morning and I have to, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they freak themselves out before they <laughs> even start. <laughs> 
and which which in yeah. turn freaks everybody else out. And so they're, <laughs> the people around them are actually mirroring the negativity they're mirroring. And they're like, wait, nobody supports oh, yeah. me. I'm like, well, yeah. uh, look what you're saying. Um, speak to that. Uh, being able to see the bird's eye view of where you want to go rather than all the nooks and crannies and other things that make mm. it in that way. Well, th- this is a, a natural progression, actually, of what we've already discussed, Sabrina Marie. You know, we started by talking about what are your non-negotiables. And when you can identify those, put them into words, they become your stands for something. Yeah? And when you start putting your stands into action, that's when they can become a commitment. And I use the metaphor of running up a mountain as an example of a, a commitment. Um, because actually, it, it's it's something I do. You know, it's not metaphorical, but it can be as well. It's something that I do. I love running, trail running, and running up hills or mountains. And I have this saying that if you want to run up a mountain, start at the top, not at the bottom. What I mean by that is that before running up a mountain, I will visualize in my mind's eye what it looks like, what it feels like standing on that summit, what I can see in terms of the horizon from that vantage point, the crisp air through my lungs, the sting of the cold air on my skin, I get really viscerally connected to that emotion of standing on top of the mountain. And then in my mind's eye, in that moment, I can look down at the path I've come up and, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't seem quite so steep or quite so bad because I've already accomplished it. And it's a very, very different world from standing at the bottom of that mountain and looking up at the summit, thinking, I'll give it my best shot. Because that has doubt in it. You're focused on how the heck am I going to get there, rather than Mm. on the end result. And here's the thing, I've never once failed to get to the top of a mountain. You know, and it it makes me think as well of um, the great athlete Usain Bolt, you know, I remember him at, I think it was the 2012 Olympics here in London, and he was at the final of the 100-meter race, and all the other finalists were very focused and, you know, looking a bit nervous. Usain Bolt was walking around and chatting to the marshals and the officials, very relaxed. And he was asked afterwards, you know, why, why were you so relaxed? He said, well, he said, in my mind, I, I'd, already, I'd already won. All I had to do was run the race. Now, that wasn't coming from a place of arrogance. That was coming from a place of, in my language, standing at the top of the mountain, being absolutely committed to getting to where you want to be without worrying too much about how you're going to get there. Because if you leave with humble confidence, there are always going to be those around you who help you figure out which path to take. Amen. And that's, that sort of goes into um, the the um, example you gave of the picture on the box with you know leading with clarity mm. and mission, being able to see and have that sense of okay, this is where I want to go, and yeah. I'm going to get there. But it also encourages people to support your mission and your momentum. They feel that momentum. You just yeah. mentioned yeah. Um, uh, Eugene Bolt and him being very relaxed, he probably had mm. that picture of him going across that finish line Absolutely. in his mind already. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, yeah. you know, like some people, nervous and thinking, I'm, uh, <laughs> I've, got, I've got competition <laughs> here. 
you know, yeah. he was not thinking that. He was thinking, okay, I, I've got this. I, if I continue on this path, I can do this. Um, one of the, the lessons I love in your book, not just this one, but the one that you did with Simon and David, of how some people can be inspired by out-of-the-box thinking. And I wanted you to talk about that because you followed some of those same steps. You didn't finish university, but you did finish uh, becoming mm-hmm. a pilot. And uh, But you, you followed some of that. Actually, a lot of that within your career, and some things don't fit in that box. Some people don't fit completely in a university. One person is P. Diddy Combs. You know, he went to university. Yeah. There are a lot of people who went to university and decided, hmm, I think I'll just, uh, you know, go along with my career. But thinking out of the box also is a success for some people. It's not a success for all, but it's a method for some. Can you speak to that? Because I think that is is important for our audience because some people have gone traditionally to college. Some people have gone to trade school. Some people haven't done any of that, but they're successful in their businesses. And if you look in the last 10 years with recessions, depressions, and and pandemics, (laughs) people have had to reinvent themselves. And it does require that out-of-the-box mentality right now, especially. Yeah. No, I agree. So what I'd say to that, Sabrina Marie, is that, Well, let's make it really simple. There are only two things in this world. Only two. There is content and there is context. Content is the things that we do, the the things that we say, the work that we're engaged in. But content has got no meaning whatsoever without context. Context gives meaning to what it is we do, to the content. And it's Mm -hmm. like that, that jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, you know, contents are all the puzzle pieces on the table. But those puzzle pieces don't make any sense whatsoever without the context. The context is the picture on the box. And so, you know, as you uh, relate my experiences and the crossroads where I turn left instead of going right or straight on, you know, uh, what I was doing was shifting the context um, of of my life and... Uh, and not being too worried about how the pieces would come together, because they would come together uh, eventually, you know. And when um, when I, I I went to university, and the, the the context was very much to try and get a a job in industry to to support my family. Um, but I actually got another job that supported my family while well, I joined the Royal Air Force. So the picture on the box was still come together. It's just the way I brought those puzzle pieces together was different. Yeah. Um, and incidentally, just I, I should mention, I did go on to finish, um, well, two degrees, actually, later on in life. So that's the other point I would make. The greatest context of all is time. For me, completing yeah. that degree at university... Sorry, Uh I I, I was just going to explain what I mean by that. Completing that degree at university at that time, uh, it wasn't the right time for me, as it turned out. Um, But later on, it did become the time for me to complete a degree. So context and content is everything. If we get very clear on our our context, the picture on the box, um, you know, what's really important to us, what's our commitment, where do we want to get to, how those puzzle pieces come together, 
can can be in a variety of ways. It might be through getting a degree at college. It might be through getting an apprenticeship or learning through um, being hands-on work. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. I think what's most important is getting very clear on that context, on that picture on the box, because that will guide us um, no matter which direction we choose to go in. One of the last questions I wanted to ask you was on th- authenticity and integrity. Um, speaking mm. of the yeah, that is so important, uh, the example that you gave, uh, you know, with mm. not only your career, but some of the things that you're, you're teaching within the jump seat method, authenticity and integrity. I, I must give a shout out to Seth Godin here, who I, I listened to one of his podcasts as I was writing my book last uh, year, and it, it put a light bulb on in my, my mind. You see, as we know, there's a lot spoken about authenticity uh, at the moment, particularly in the realm of, of leadership. And I always had a little bit of a problem with it because, <laughs> well, take one of the extreme examples I found myself in. During the 2003 Iraq war, I was leading 200 people. Uh, we flew large, unarmed, undefended aircraft, and we flew around in circles giving gas, giving fuel away to fighter jets. And we tended to get shot at quite a bit from from anti-aircraft fire on the ground, which, you know, got a bit irritating after a while, but that was the job. And when I was leading those 200 people, to be absolutely authentic, um, I would have shared the fears I had the uncertainties I had, the questions I had about what we were doing. But that would not have been in service of my people. And this is where Seth Godin came in for me, because Seth said, you know what, being authentic, a four-year-old child is authentic. That child will cry when it's hungry or sad. That's authentic. But by the time you, you reach 10, 11, 12, you give up the right to be authentic. You need to have a filter in place. And that filter is integrity. And in my case, leading those people during the Iraq war in 2003, the integrity filter for me was being their leader, their senior person. They were probably equally fearful or confused or uncertain about what they were doing at times. But I needed to provide a foundation for them, a foundation of certainty to to find the signal amongst the noise so as they could focus properly on uh, what they needed to do. And if I'd been just hmm, unfiltered, authentic, I would not have been that person for them. So for me, authenticity, certainly as a leader, um, when it's unfiltered, is not good. We need to have that filter of integrity to be in service of the people who look towards us to lead. With each chapter, you go through the three steps of learning, learning to fly, flying, teaching others, which is mentoring, and then leading from the jump seat. My last question is the jump seat method of um, mm. of teaching. Where do you want to take this? Uh, this is a very good book, and I'm sure that you have, have plans you. for this. Absolutely. You know, uh, <laughs> Leading from the jump seat and uh, the the story of that title is the first story I share in the book. The book is very much a how-to guide. Uh, At the end of each chapter, we share ideas, I share ideas called Consider This of how to put those 
uh, thoughts from the chapter into practice. Um, and so at the moment I'm speaking around the world, I continue doing that, uh, sharing these ideas of leading from the jump seat and also delivering workshops. And that's what I, I hope to do. I'm, I'm developing other courses to be able to do this at scale as well. Because leading from the jump seat, in essence, it, it's all about lifting others up and giving them the space so that when the time is right, they can take the lead and carry forward those things that we feel are deeply important to us. And for me, this is the highest form of leadership because it's not about increasing or retaining our own power. It's about empowering others. And when I see others empowered and going on to lead others and do great things, that for me is, uh, well, it puts a smile on my face. And for me, the definition of success is the joy that I feel at the end of each day. And seeing people succeed in that way gives me great joy. You've been listening to Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright March 11th, 2023.